That is actually a much better term than Buddhism. Buddha, Dhamma, the Dhamma of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha. And that I think has a very different quality in meaning than the word Buddhism. As soon as you say Buddhism, uh, we, it's one of the isms, one of the doctrines, one of the belief systems, one of the religions, and quite often that which we associate with religion is not in accordance with the teachings of the Buddha. When we say the teachings of the Buddha, then automatically it begs the question, what is the teachings of the Buddha? What did the teaching, what did the Buddha teach? When you say Buddhism, it doesn't really invite you to question, to inquire, to investigate, to find out. Because Buddhism is just a label like any of the other isms that seem to denote something that's not so relevant or not so important actually and most of us, especially those of us in the West who have moved away from our traditional uh, religion such as Christianity find it rather unpleasant or don't even like the thought of an ism and uh, a religion but the teachings of the Buddha is something which does invite investigation and inquiry. And there are many aspects to these teachings. All of them are the explanations, the directions, the guidelines given by a remarkable being, a Buddha, an enlightened being. In an attempt to help other human beings realize happiness and realize liberation. The Buddha did not attempt or claim to enlighten people through some power or some magic or some charm or some grace. But he knew very clearly what enlightenment was. He knew very clearly what the path to enlightenment is. And he knew very clearly the potential of every human being, that is, the potential to attain to that enlightenment. The Buddha also knew very clearly the laws of nature, the way life is, how everything in life follows the laws of nature. He understood that results come from conditions, supportive conditions. When the conditions are right, results can come about. He understood this law so well, so clearly, that he saw that there was no need to spend all one's time asking for and begging for this or begging for that from a God or from a heavenly being or from some external power. He recognized very clearly the ability of the human being to take full responsibility for one's own life and to make the effort to create the right conditions in order to achieve that which one aspires for. If we aspire to happiness, then we need to develop the conditions which are conducive to happiness. If we aspire to enlightenment, then we must cultivate the conditions which facilitate the attainment of enlightenment. These things are not attained, obtained, or attained through the uh, asking, begging, through some magnanimous gesture of some power outside of ourselves. Everything follows the laws of nature. When this con these conditions are present, certain results can come about. When these conditions are not, those results cannot be. 
And so the Buddha, from this enlightened perspective, was able to point out these various truths, these various guidelines to help human beings realize happiness and realize liberation. This we call the teachings of the Buddha. These guidelines, these truths, these laws that he pointed out to us. One of the most basic uh, aspects of this teaching is something which many people can't appreciate at first glance. The Buddha pointed to attachment as a great source of misery. That attachment was actually the source of all conflict, was actually the source of all anguish and trouble, was also the actual source of war and strife. In other words, the problems within oneself and the problems between human beings have their source at this quality called attachment. Strange, isn't it? Because that word itself sounds like quite a positive quality, attachment. And quite often we use it interchangeably with other words such as love. I have great attachment. I feel very attached to you. And we think that that is actually quite a good thing. But the Buddha pointed to this one aspect, one particular aspect of mind, attachment, as a great source of trouble, as a root cause of suffering. There is, of course, the conditions that bring about attachment. Attachment doesn't arise from nothing. There is a reason for attachment. But it is a pivotal point. We can relate to this thing called attachment very easily. We can see it very easily. We can recognize it. We can also, if we look closely, see how it does cause conflict and anguish in our lives. Whereas the more fundamental, more basic uh, causes that underlie attachment are not so easy to see. Attachment arises from causes, but those causes are, are more fundamental and more difficult for us to see. In particular, ignorance. One of the powers, or the power of ignorance, is that you don't know you're ignorant, you see. So you can't see it. You just can't see that you're ignorant. You don't, can't because you're not enlightened, so you don't see ignorance. You only see ignorance when you're enlightened. Then you burst the bubble. So ignorance is quite a difficult thing for us to, to actually see clearly. But attachment, which results from ignorance, something which we can observe, notice, and also see the consequences of it. But we have to be very attentive. Attachment is not a positive quality of mind. Attachment is not the source of happiness and well-being. Attachment is not that wonderful thing that will give us security, joy, and fulfillment. Attachment is the very opposite. It is that quality which creates mental anguish. It creates fear. It creates conflict. It creates all that is unpleasant, undesirable, unwanted. So now, let us look at this attachment. What does it feel like to be attached? Is it a grand, noble quality of mind? Or is it a very restricted, rigid, narrow state of mind? I 
think all of us can appreciate that when we're attached to something, our minds become restricted, constricted. It is not a grand, noble quality of mind, state of mind. It is not an open state of mind. In actual fact, one can say that where there is attachment, there is no peace and there is no compassion and no true love. Although quite often, as I said, we may uh, use these words synonymously as a term, in other words, attachment with love, but here I would like to make this point very clear. Where there is attachment, there is no true peace. There can be no true harmony. There can be no true compassion, no true love. Because attachment constricts, restricts, excludes. It constricts the mind, it restricts the mind, it closes the mind, it excludes other things, other people, other views, other beliefs. And when there is that constriction of the mind, restriction of the mind, and the exclusion of others, then there is conflict. Then there can be no real peace, no real harmony. It blocks compassion and it blocks love. So what is it that we attach to? Of course, the mind will attach to most things, anything. But as a, as a way of uh, explaining, categorizing, for contemplation, the Buddha classified attachment into four groups. And the classification is based on the objects of attachment. The objects to which the mind clings and takes hold and thus becomes constricted and restricted by those objects at the exclusion of others. The first category he called attachment to sensuality, sensual pleasure. Sensory gratification, whichever one of those words you wish or phrases you wish to use to translate the from the Pali term, karma. Karma is like sensual, that, that associated with sensuality, usually pleasurable, sensory experience. And this is one of the very basic forms of attachment that we share with every other living creature, every other living creature, every animal. Attachment to pleasure. Attachment, clinging, craving, preference and bias towards pleasure, comfort, that which is gratifying. This is fundamental, fundamental in living creatures, dogs, cats, birds, lizards. <laughs> human beings of any nationality, every nationality has this basic form of attachment. Of course, the, our perceptions are different. Perception is a conditioned faculty of the mind and because it is conditioned by environment, by genetic, by karmic influences, we do perceive in different ways. Therefore, to perceive means to assess, to give value to. In other words, it is that movement of the mind or that uh, aspect of mental activity which gives value to the sensory experience. So, we will uh, possibly assess experience 
differently. Some will say, this is pleasurable. Some will say, this is not pleasurable. In other words, you know, we, our tastes, some of us like hot food, we think that's delicious. Spicy food. Some people find spicy food uh, very unpleasant to eat. So that uh, living creatures, as, in the, as well as human beings, will not necessarily agree on what is pleasurable, what is pleasant, sensual and desirable. They will perceive things differently, but they all share in the attachment. In other words, whatever we perceive as being pleasurable, gratifying, desirable, we attach to quite instinctually. And this is very common throughout. So that uh, the perception is that which more or less decides what we see as desirable, pleasant, gratifying attractive. But attachment is that movement of the mind which then takes hold of and possesses and wants to control, wants to keep, wants to have me, mine, because it's gratifying to me. So the uh, dung beetle that lives in the pile of dung it perceives that dung as very desirable, gratifying and pleasurable and it will attach to it very strongly. That's the perception of the dung beetle. The attachment is exactly the same though. There's one of the stories in the Buddhist, some of the Buddhist um, scriptures, I'm not sure which one, I don't remember, but there is these two very close friends and they were both very uh, very close friends and very good people in fact but I'm not sure what happened what went wrong something must have gone wrong in the course of their lifetime because one of these two friends at the passing away breaking up of the body was reborn in one of the heavenly realms. I'm not sure which one, maybe the Pusita heaven or the one of those heavenly realms. And the other friend on the breaking up of the body was reborn as a dumb beetle <laughs> in a pile of dumb. <laughs> so the friend that was being reborn in the heavenly realm had of course divine what we call the divine eye they could see in other realms. And he said, I wonder what's happened to my good friend. Well, why isn't he here as well? I wonder where he's gone. So he, using his uh, divine eye, psychic power, he sought look for his friend. And lo and behold, there was his friend reborn as a dung beetle in a pile of dung. And of course, he, he, that's terrible. Imagine that happening to your friend. What would you do? So this uh, heavenly being manifested a body and came down to earth and went over to that dung pile and uh, grabbed the, dung, the beetle and tried to pull it out from this pile of dung. But the beetle wouldn't have a bar of it. It struggled. Go away, leave me alone. This is my pile of dung. Don't you dare try to take my dung. <laughs> and he couldn't get it away from the pile of dung. Because the perception of the two beings is quite different. The perception of, from the dung beetle's point of view, this was a wonderful state to be in. <laughs> For a dung beetle to be in a pile of dung is heaven. For the heavenly being with a much more refined conditioning and perception, it's very coarse, very gross. Not at all desirable. No attachment <laughs> in terms of desire. More aversion. 
And so he had to leave his friend and go back to heaven. That was it. But attachment is the experience of all living creatures who are still unenlightened. Very common experience is attachment to pleasure, to comfort. Attachment to that which we perceive to be gratifying. It's important to say that. That which we perceive to be gratifying to us. In other words, it, we assess this as being pleasurable. It will give us pleasure. It will fulfill our need for pleasure, our thirst for pleasure. We attach to it. Now this, you can see, does easily create a lot of problems in life. So much of the competition, so much of the conflicts that arise between living creatures arise around this one, attachment to pleasure, sensory pleasure, the competition, the struggle, physical struggle between in the jungle between animals, the struggle between human beings, between nations. How much of it is around this this one little one? I don't think it's so little. There's <laughs> a lot of struggle around it. The struggle to get, possess, and keep. Those objects, those things, those conditions that we deem or assess to be gratifying to us, provide pleasure for us. And this does create conflict between people. It creates a lot of competition. It creates so much of the stress because we're so committed to try and get more of these things that we have to struggle and push our bodies and push our minds and push ourselves to such extremes. And we are destroying the planet in the course of it all. Just a sideline. The planet is limited. You know, it's only a little planet really. This little earth is only a little planet. But this insatiable desire, craving and attachment to pleasure, comfort, gratification, is just consuming the whole planet. Hmm. So much of this uh, present situation that we see with the, uh, so the state of the world, the state of the ecology, is all around this one. To pleasure, comfort, sensory gratification. That's all that it's about. So we can, if we contemplate this attachment, we can see how it does create troubles between people, creates trouble for the whole world, for the whole existence. And if it isn't realized, understood and controlled, it will destroy the planet. It will consume the planet. And the most sinister aspect of this is that we, it does not provide happiness for us anyway. It doesn't really provide happiness because this attachment to sensory pleasure and gratification, what does that mean? The stronger that attachment, what does that mean? You will find that the greater the experience of fear, anxiety, inner conflict and turmoil. This is not happiness. 
even when we get that which we assess to be gratifying, there's the anxiety of losing it. Even when we have it, we're afraid of losing it. So there is fear and there is anxiety. We're afraid of encountering that which is unpleasant, that which is not gratifying, that which is mm, painful. The more we are, actually the more we accustom to gratification, to comfort, to pleasure, the more and more we suffer from the fear of losing these and the fear of experiencing the opposite because we have little endurance. The more vulnerable we become, the more emotional, mental, stress, fear, anxiety we do experience. There's one lady that I know in China, very, very rich, very rich lady. One year she applied, she, she goes to England quite often. She applied for this visa to go to England. But it's not no easy matter when you're so rich and accustomed to so much comfort and pleasure and convenience. You just can't get a visa for yourself. You've got to get a visa for the driver, a visa for the cook, a visa for the person who does her hair, a visa for the housekeeper, about six or seven people. And she couldn't get a visa for all these people. So she couldn't go to England. <laughs> I mean, can I possibly go to England without my hairdresser? <laughs> what would I do? Uh, life becomes very difficult. Attachment. Now the Buddha pointed this out, he just made, made this very clear, this attachment to sensual pleasure, to comfort, to that which we assess to be gratifying, uh, clinging does create problems externally and internally. It needs to be understood for what it is, so that we can then take steps to deal with it. And that is why one of the fundamental trainings on the Buddhist path is to do with skillful means to try and weaken this type of attachment such as generosity such as renunciation such as moral precepts they are all trying to uh, develop the ability to control and weaken this one attachment this one aspect of attachment because we're saying, we're learning to say no. And keeping the five precepts. Oh, that's a nice watch you've got. Mm. <laughs> no, no, it's his. Living within the, the commitment of marriage. Or commitment of not being married. They're all commitments, regardless of your position. That takes, that's like a, a restraint of this particular attachment, learning how to rise up. The mind can rise up and be free from this addiction of attachment. So it's a training in that. Generosity, giving, sharing is fundamental. One of the first paramitas is dana paramita. It's one of the fundamental practices for all Buddhists, regardless of whether they can keep precepts or meditate or not. And dana is the universal characteristic of a Buddhist community, the ability to share, to give, to support, to help others. It's just very, very fundamental, and it's a characteristic that we see in all Buddhists, especially Theravada Buddhist communities. It's, uh, it's just universal very strong, the idea of giving and sharing. And this is one of the skillful tools that the Buddha presented for trying to um, say, build up the strength to rise up above this particular attachment, which is very much what I like, I want for me. 
and just like the dog with the bowl of food. You go near it and you'll start growling. Even when it's full, this is Ajahn Chah, my teacher used to say that, the dog, you give it food, it eats it. You give it another bowl, it eats it. Stuff. Anybody comes close, it'll growl. Give it a third bowl, it can't eat anymore. But you go close to it, it'll still growl. <laughs> Wants to keep it for later. <laughs> and this is, this is the basic instinct of attachment to pleasure, that which is gratifying. It's very instinctual. Source of conflict, source of trouble, externally, internally, between people. It's something that needs to be recognized so that then we can uh, understand the reason for some of this training on the path. The training in morality, the training in renunciation, the training in generosity in particular. The other, another aspect of this attachment that the Buddha pointed to was again something quite uh, fundamental but more a characteristic found especially amongst uh, more evolved uh, creatures, living creatures such as human beings. He called it the attachment to rites and rituals. And at first this is something that we can't relate to very much because uh, many of us think we're not. Uh, many of us think that we are not attached to rites and rituals. Only those other people are attached. To <laughs> people who are superstitious. Yes, there are many people who are superstitious, and even many Buddhist people, very superstitious. And certainly in the time of the Buddha, superstition was very, very prominent, very strong. Uh, the the dominant religious force. Uh, the official religion of the time of the Buddha, say, was Brahmanism. Brahman priests, they were the keepers of the secret, the secret chants, the secret secret mantras, the secret, uh, the performance of these secret rites and rituals in order to appease the gods, in order to get what one wants. And most of them were uh, sacrifices involving the slaughter of animals. Brahmanism was pretty gruesome in the time of the Buddha. It slowly became reformed over the ages, mainly because of the influence of uh, the Samanas, these religious seekers outside of the Brahman uh, established religion, these religious seekers who uh, lived virtuously and, and sought through self-discipline and training to realize something beyond just... Uh, rules and rituals and beliefs and the, samana, the samanas included like the Buddha and his followers, Mahavira, the, uh, his followers and many other groups and it was through the influence of these samanas, these later uh, uh, religious orders that Brahmanism slowly became reformed and they gave up some of these more gruesome aspects of their rites and rituals. But there are many, many different aspects of rites and rituals being practiced in the time of the Buddha, and we find it very much so today. I know in Thailand it's very common, in Malaysia amongst the Chinese, it's very, very common, and I'm sure in Burma and Sri Lanka there is plenty of it as well. Attachment to rites and rituals is that movement of the mind where we give up responsibility. We relinquish responsibility for ourselves. We empower something outside. We empower someone out there. We, in other words, we give up responsibility. This is very, mm, very much contrary to the Buddhist teachings. And it's seen as a source of any troubles. Attachments to rites and rituals, empowering particular uh, forms, particular symbols, particular rituals, particular, particular ceremonies, particular beings, 
and attaching to those symbols being. What is the result of that? Oh, you can see it through the ages. <laughs> There's plenty of it. The result of that is conflict, is exploitation throughout the ages. It separates people. It creates basis for lack of harmony, lack of peace. And it blocks the path to enlightenment because one has given up responsibility. Let the symbol do it, let the technique do it, let the ritual do it, let the praying do it. So that we have these uh, so much dependence on lucky charms, lucky numbers, auspicious days, lucky signs. <coughs> Very common in Thailand. Just recently I had this... Uh, say that Thai people, Buddhists are always trying to get a lottery number out of the monks. <laughs> but I'd forgotten, I mean this happens in Thailand, I didn't realize this would happen so much even in Australia, but I have these... Uh, I have a lot of people, a lot of Thai people visit me from Thailand in Perth. And I'm just ordinary. Perth is quite close to Thailand and I know a lot of people and they, they visit quite often. It's just ordinary. But this one particular couple, come, doctors, both husband and wife, and they come very often. And the last time they came, they, they were... You know, I was... Uh, I decided that that afternoon I was going to have a rest and not receive guests and just hide in my room, so I, I'm not going out. And I heard the cars and I did not, I'm not going out. And they came and knocked on my door and I'm not going <laughs> Finally the monk and another monk came and called me. I said, well, if they want to see me, they'll have to wait till 5.30 at the drink time. I'm not coming out. <laughs> this was about 2 o'clock. And at 5.30 I go out and sure enough they're there waiting for me. What oh, devout people? What oh, really devout <laughs> Buddhist people? This is amazing. <clears throat> I felt really quite uh, inspired. And waiting for two hours to see me. You know, <laughs> uh, very devout. And I felt very favorably disposed. And then I <laughs> and I, I heard the real reason. Last time they came to see me. Because they always associate whatever they, you say, they always pick on something to work out the numbers. So the last time they won on the lottery. <laughs> so now they, this time they came and they won, they just said, but this time we'd like a bigger prize. <laughs> and now this is, um, you know, this is one of the aspects of this attachment to rites and rituals and superstition and there's a great deal of it in Buddhism great deal of it, you know, when you invite monks you must have, you know, a certain number of monks, you can't have less than that. Uh, so what are you going to do? There's only one monk, so what are you going to do now? <laughs> but we've got to have four monks, or five monks, depending on whether it's a funeral, or whether it's a house blessing. All of this, this is an accumulation, so much has been taken from Brahmanism, and uh, it's been... Uh, blended in with Buddhism and people attached to these things very strongly. And one can sympathize, but one can see that it's somehow empowering something externally rather than this in here, your heart, your mind is the source. Not, this, not the sign, not the numbers out there, not the amulet that you may wear around our neck, or the Buddha statue even. Very powerful Buddha statue, this one. <laughs> uh, the power comes from the mind. The statue has no power. The amulet has no power. The number has no power. The power comes from the mind. And this attachment that we see does create a lot of conflicts, a lot of schisms, a lot of uh, separation between people. 
when we attach very strongly to our customs, to our language, to our way of doing things, we become intolerant. We do shut out others. We do separate and we look down on. And people will even fight over. You know, the, the classic uh, story, um, Gulliver's... Uh, what is Gulliver's Travels? You know, the war between these two people, these two groups of people, whether you should break the egg from the the pointy end or from the more rounded end. Yes, people will go to war over something like that. I can believe it. And this is attachment to rites and rituals. How many wars happen in the household over something just as silly as that? We do it all the time. Attachments to rites and rituals, to symbols, to form, to um, to ways of ceremony, ways of doing things. But this attachment does create conflict between people, and it, of course, it, it creates a lot of uh, anxiety in yourself once you attach. You are very vulnerable, you see, very anxious. And once you've been told that and you believe it, if a black cat passes in front, in front of you, that's bad luck. Then you're, you're really worried. Oh, the black cat, oh, do you mean... Because then <laughs> you're worried, you have fear. It weakens the mind. We also have it in other ways that people quite often don't see it, even more subtle ways. Attachment to a particular technique of meditation is attachment to rites and rituals. Empowering the technique. This technique will enlighten you. The technique will enlighten you is attachment to rites and rituals. The technique is a technique, it is a tool. It has no power. It is the mind that gives it the power, the way the mind uses the technique. It, the power comes from the mind. It is not the technique. And yet people will separate. If you come and meditate here, you must practice this technique and you can't bring your vibrations. <laughs> if you've been to meditate somewhere else, uh, you've got to go through a purification course because your <laughs> vibrations are wrong now. <laughs> and this sort of thing, we said, it's a practice this day and age amongst our own Buddhist communities is very, very much in line with attachment to rites and rituals. Empowering the external symbol, empowering the external objects, empowering people. Hmm? the guru, the vibrations of the guru. Yes, it is not, I'm not, uh, not belittling that the, it is possible for human beings to have power, but no one can enlighten you. You must take responsibility for yourself. And if the teacher is a good teacher, he would not try to take away this responsibility from you. The teacher which I respect the greatest, of course, is my own teacher, Venerable Ajahn Chah, who is an extraordinary man. But never did he encourage his disciples to hand over responsibility to him. If you try to, he just push it back onto you. He doesn't want just a bunch of disciples dependent on him. He's the teacher. He wants to enlighten. He wants you. He wants the disciples to take responsibility, to become enlightened, free, not just a slave. 
So this is another area of attachment. It's a more of a. At first, we may not think that it's something that's not so relevant, but when we really contemplate it, we see it is quite prominent in our lives. Attachment to rites and rituals, the way we think things have to be done in order for them to be right. And uh, it's a custom, tradition, uh, some of these ceremonies, symbols, techniques, meditation, and of course, even, you know, even, of course, the grosser forms of it is superstition. Superstition is a bit coarser aspect, but also quite common. Another area of attachment, which is very powerful, and this one you will be able to understand very easily, and it's especially strong amongst the more, not necessarily intelligent, but intellectual, people who uh, develop their intellectual faculties more. In other words, ideas, ability to think and reason. Is the attachment to views and opinions. It tops in that one. Fierce <laughs> and strong amongst people who are very much living in the head, in ideas and views and opinions. And there is no end of strife, no end of conflict, no end of misery as a result of this attachment to views and opinions. How many conflicts, how many wars? The attachment to views and opinions, ideologies, beliefs, lots of them. How many wars in your own household? All the time. The arguments, how many arguments every day? How many conflicts every day? The, this, the intensity of the conflict, of course, being directly proportional to the degree of, of attachment. The stronger the attachment to views and opinions, what I think, what I believe, the stronger that is, of course, the more your mind becomes constricted and restricted and exclusive and therefore at odds with that which is outside. In other words, all the other views and opinions. How many views are there in the world? Just two. Mine and others. <laughs> My view and all the others. <laughs> That's all there is. So this is, attachment is a very, mm, very strong one for most of us. And the thing is, we can't live life without views. I mean, you can't live without views and ideas. It's just natural. You've got to have views and ideas in this to function, to think. The problem is how to live with views without this attachment to views. And what is the difference? Living with views, we do have views. But the attachment to it is a, a, an added constriction. It's like a rigidity and an unreasonable uh, obsession with one's own perspective and inability to see it from another angle, inability to accept that it can be seen from another <laughs> angle, Inability to compromise, inability to tolerate, inability to work with the differences, different views. Then the attachment to view not only causes disagreement, it does cause conflict. There's a difference. It's natural that there will always be disagreements because there will always be a variety of views. Human beings will have different views, naturally, and they will disagree. But the, once the attachment to view becomes strong, then not disagreement, 
conflict, strife. And this creates so much conflict between human beings, so much misery in family life, at work, within a society, and so much inner, inner stress, inner tension, inner hatred, inner resentment. It blocks compassion. It blocks love. Love is there. It's not that it's not there. It's there, but it's being blocked. It's a big, like you got this love and then you put this big open rock on it. Big rocks. Block it completely, squash it completely. Attachment to view, views, my views, and the conflict that results from that, compassion. You can't feel compassion, you can't feel for the other. You can't, the, the love doesn't come out. Because at that moment the mind is oppressed, constricted, and restricted with this attachment. This is one of the greatest sources of suffering for all of us. We can see this in every aspect of life, parents with children in particular, because we see things differently. But why can't you see it the way I see it? Because I see it differently. That's why we are from looking at it from a different perspective. Views are relative. Views, opinions and beliefs are relative. They are not absolute. They are not permanent. Have you noticed how your own views change in one day? I don't know whether my mind is uh, unusual. Maybe your minds are different. <laughs> my mind, my views change all the time. They change all the time. Sometimes it's a bit comical, you know, when you do think back on it. It's just changed. Complete opposite. I think I told this story when I was here last time. That everything I say I've repeated at least half a dozen times. <laughs> it was um, one on, uh, in Perth. We have a Buddhist society and we have a committee and I'm on the committee as the um, spiritual head of the society. Nobody knows what I actually am on that committee. It's a strange committee. But I'm on the committee. <laughs> and uh, I actually have a lot of power because I have the power of veto. That's very powerful. <laughs> but it's a strange situation. Anyway, we're having, we, we received this donation. At that time we still had a mortgage trying to pay off the present Buddhist center. Uh, we were still paying the mortgage. And we received this donation, this lady sent this donation. Quite a sizable sum, I think it was about $10,000. And she sent it to me to use in the monastery. And I said, oh, you know, I've been hearing that many of the committee people, you know, being concerned about the mortgage for the Buddhist Society Center. And, and so I said, well, we don't really need it at the monastery right now. You know, I asked her, can we use it to repay the mortgage? because we want to get rid of this mortgage. And she said, oh yes, whatever you'd like to do with it. It's my gift to you, whatever you like. Thanks. Right. So I went to the committee and I said, oh, this $10,000 is being given and uh, the lady said we can use it to repay the mortgage. And so then the, this, out of now this debate started to arise as, should we repay the mortgage or maybe we should do some of these alterations that we've been wanting to do because there's, now there's a lot of improvements that need to be done. Now we've got $10,000. We should do these improvements. <laughs> and so this big uh, discussion. And I was of the view, no, no, we should pay the mortgage because that's, you know, that's what I said we'd do. These other people said, no, no, we should, we should do these alterations. <laughs> so we couldn't resolve it because, you know, there is no, if it's not a consensus, you don't want to push. So we came back. And this is one of the most difficult forms of attachments to deal with. 
and it can actually only be dealt with through insight, through seeing, is actually that which breeds all the other forms of attachment, because all of those protect this basic attachment, which are not so easy to see. This last one is actually the most difficult one to see, but it is the the foundation, it is the core, the S or the other forms of attachment, and that is the attachment to self. Attachment to the self-view, to me, as a separate, limited entity, separate, therefore lacking, therefore vulnerable, therefore have to struggle, have to fight, have to protect. This basic attachment, so fundamental, actually no other teacher, no other religious teacher has even pointed to it, because it's so fundamental that most people never question it. The attachment to self, me and mine. I. This basic delusion, basic mm, ignorance is actually that which breeds all the other forms of attachment because all of those things come from this center. This is the center from which every form of attachment, every form of craving arises from. Me. As long as I am here at this center, and I am limited, and I am separate, and I am vulnerable, then there must be attachment to sensual pleasure, to gratification. Because I'm lacking, I want. And I'm vulnerable, therefore I must defend. And this is one of the most difficult forms of attachments to deal with. And it can actually only be dealt with through insight, through seeing clearly, seeing deeply the nature of this process of mind and body, shattering the bubble, shattering the delusion of a self by seeing reality. But this is the fundamental attachment. And again, it's fundamental to all living beings, all living beings, animals, humans, heavenly beings. This is one of the fundamental ones. A, a Sotapanna has seen beyond it, but cannot live it. Only the Arahatta, or the Arahatta, can live the reality of non-self. And therefore, only the arahatta has no obstruction to peace, no obstruction to love, no obstruction to compassion. There is no longer any obstruction. And therefore, we say of the Buddha, Buddha Susudo Karuna Mahanavo. The Buddha is the enlightened one, the pure one, the one with ocean like compassion. Natural. Compassion is natural from the mind that is pure and enlightened. So it is uh, good for all of us to contemplate these things, in particular these um, areas of attachment, to see what attachment is, what the attachment is to the consequences of this attachment, and then we have incentive to start doing something about it. And this doing something about it is following the path, the path of training, beginning with the very fundamental of generosity, of moral precepts, and then the more refined aspects of renunciation and mental training and meditation. But even just becoming more aware of this, this uh, 